So just how can big companies actually use artificial intelligence and data to become more efficient and make more money? On this episode of Powered by Battery, Ali Godsey, the co-founder and CEO of data analytics company Databricks, tells us how. Godsey, who hails from Iran and was educated in Sweden, also talks about how he and a group of five other academics from the University of California at Berkeley banded together to create an open source technology called Apache Spark and then turn it into a venture-backed company. Have a listen. Well, Ali Godsey from Databricks, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's let's talk a little more about kind of where you guys are today from a business perspective um, and the specific problems that you're solving for customers. Um, I guess this was a few months ago when you guys raised some uh, financing. I saw you quoted a couple times as talking about how Databricks is selling boring AI, I guess, as opposed to sexy AI, which I'm thinking of self-driving cars, something like that, talking refrigerators. What, what do you mean by boring AI? What does that really mean for companies? Yeah, really what's happening in the market that every Fortune, you know, 500 global 2000 company is waking up, they're bored, their CEO realized that they only maybe have five years left or they're gonna be outcompeted by some new tech company that's using data and machine learning and they're gonna be put out of the business that they started, you know, and they've been succeeding at for hundreds of years. This is companies in multiple industries, you mean? In every industry you can find this, right? Okay. I mean, examples like Uber is disrupting even taxi medallions, like a commodity right. old hundred year old business. Right. Right. Amazon with the retail business, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Google and you know, Facebook with the media and so on. Right. They're seeing the writing on the wall. They know we don't have much time left. We better get our strategy together. We have to become a tech company. Mm -hmm. We have to become data driven and we have to start applying AI everywhere or we're gonna disappear. Mm -hmm. This is what most company boards and CEOs wanna do. Okay. And they're freaking out. It's very hard for them to find the people that actually can build this stuff for them. They don't have the 30,000 engineers that Google has. They don't have all the PhDs. They haven't been able to soak up all the professors from all the top universities like these few, you know, the fan companies have. Right. Uh, so what they need to do is actually get their data strategy together and actually get it in a place and just break the silos they have in their organization and have a data platform that they can actually leverage so that they can become more data driven. So most of that stuff is the really boring stuff. The actually really sexy AI, the self-driving cars mm -hmm. and the Alexas and so on, and you know, ex machina replacing mankind, that's not <laughs> what they want to do. They just want to connect their data systems that they already have. They have lots of systems. Those systems have all lots of data in it, and they've been collecting that for 10, 20, 30 years. They need to connect it in a place. They need to make sure that it's ready for AI. And with that goes a lot of sort of cleansing, data quality, data reliability issues. They need to attack that. Mm -hmm. And it's usually not very sexy, it's pretty boring. And that's what they need to do. And if they can do that, they can have massive impact. Well, so right. what I, I want to drill down a little more. Like, what are examples of this kind of data? Is it like customer data? Macy's has data on me and what I buy at Macy's? Something like that. I don't know if that's the best that's example. It's one example, but uh -huh. there are lots of lots of examples. A customer like Regeneron has built one of the world's largest genome databases mm -hmm. on Databricks. That means they have the genome sequence for a million patients. And they also have their electronic medical records and they can actually use these two and correlate them to find out what genes are responsible for what diseases, and they can actually develop drugs to attack those uh, diseases. So right. that's one use case, and machine learning is there used to find those gene sequences. Yeah. That's one example, but you can have a company like Bechtel. Mm -hmm. They have lots of data on how they build 10-year big construction projects that cost billions of dollars, 
and they can actually figure out using machine learning how they should sequence, in which order they should build all the different individual parts of that construction project. And if they do that, they can actually save between 10 to $100 million. Wow, super interesting. What? Just talking about AI much more broadly, I mean, I feel like the term AI has almost jumped the shark. I mean, it, it seems like every company now says they're leveraging AI. But thinking broadly, a lot of people are still very afraid of AI. You know, people are talking about how eventually all this is going to put a lot of people out of work. There's going to have to be a universal basic income. What, what's your broad view of the future, like 20, 30, 40 years out when it comes to AI and the broader effect on society? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's some people that are afraid that robots literally will become, you know, have conscience and yeah. attack human beings and so on. That will not happen. That was a movie, right? No, I'm just kidding. There were a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen in a okay. very long time because simply no one is even doing research on trying to do that. Okay. okay. So the techniques we're using today, they can't really be used for that. That's uh, reassuring. Okay, good. Yes. Good. I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but um, AI is being used to automate a lot of jobs. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, those jobs are mostly mundane jobs mm -hmm. that I actually think most human beings probably don't want to do anyway. Uh -huh. um, so I think that's just good. Mm -hmm. um, there's a different question that has nothing to do with tech companies, which is, okay, as those jobs get replaced, um, what are those human beings going to do? Exactly. How are they going to get an income? That's, I think, more of a wealth distribution question. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a more political question. Right. Uh, but as long as AI is not making healthcare, education, housing or you know access to food any worse it's actually not making anything fundamental on the planet worse off right right and in fact ai can be used to improve all of those things and it is being used to improve all of those things so it's actually good for mankind now if we decide to take all the wealth that that creates and give it just to one guy yet yeah, that's not so great for everyone else on the planet right but that's a different question that's a different movie, right? I'm thinking yes. of Tony Stark or something. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, let's backtrack uh, a little bit now and talk about your background personally and exactly how you started Databricks. Yeah, it's pretty simple. I was born in Iran uh, and, uh, you know, right at the revolution there. And uh, we actually had to flee as political refugees. Uh, so we, my parents picked Sweden of all the countries. And that's where I grew up. And uh, I did... Uh, computer science and eventually got a degree there and eventually went down the research route and took a faculty job there. Um, and eventually, actually, I started collaborating with uh, some American researchers here. Uh, I was a gentleman who was at MIT at the time. His name was Jan Stoika. And uh, I started working closer with him and eventually actually ended up coming here to, do, uh, to be a visiting uh, researcher here at UC Berkeley in 2009 uh, with the same gentleman. Uh, which I had been working with uh, when he was at MIT many, many decades, or a decade earlier. Okay. And um, and that's uh, where it all started. Sort of all the all the stuff that we're doing today at Databricks uh, started right there. When you were at university in Sweden, um, I'm assuming you're studying computer science. Did you start out with a focus on, I mean, because the way the company was started was an open source data, open source databases. Did that focus start there or did that not happen until you got to Berkeley? No, that was later at Berkeley. Yeah. Okay. I actually focused on kind of, decentralized distributed systems. These days, cryptocurrencies and things like that. That's oh, sort of what okay. I did my PhD on, kind of. Was there a moment or how did you kind of start to think maybe there's a company in this research that I'm doing? Yeah, so what happened is basically 2009, uh, we were getting quite a bit of funding from Silicon Valley tech companies. And we saw what they were doing. And what they were doing is they were claiming that they were getting fantastic results using AI techniques from the 70s. And we didn't really believe them because those techniques were well known to not work. Huh. 
So we started working closer with them, and actually, it was true. They were getting superhuman results. They had amazing, like, they were being able to do predictions that no one else was being able to do at the How, time. How, though, with the old technology? Yeah, th that was the thing. That was the head-scratcher. But it turned out that those techniques, which everyone had written off, especially in academia, where we were from, uh, they actually worked great if you just added a thousand times more data to it. So they had just not used enough data on those algorithms. Okay. And it's because there weren't billions of people connected to the internet in the 70s and 80s, and we didn't have the hardware. So we just tried it with small data, and the results weren't great. Turns out, you know, late 2000, much, much more data, superhuman results. And it was like fascinating to us. And what, and what, I don't know if you can talk about these companies, who they were, what were the problems they were trying to solve? Well, it was the usual suspect. It was, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Airbnb, and they were using massive amounts of data. They could, you know, predict exactly what you wanted to buy, predict exactly what you wanted to see, you know, and they could do all kinds of predictions, you know. A lot of them were under NDA, so I can't sort right. of share them, but they were sort of really mind-boggling results. I mean, we were like shocked. Can you really do that? I mean, like, this was 2008 and nine, so a long time ago. And then what, what happened next? You also, you started this company with some co-founders, right? Yeah. So I'm assuming you're working with a small group of people at this yeah, point. Yeah, so this is a research team at UC Berkeley, and we're sort of completely blown away what these companies are doing. And we look at the enterprise space, what the enterprises are doing, it's totally different. The enterprises, they have these old traditional data warehouses, they're locking their data into it. They're not doing anything interesting with it, okay? So we wanted to revolutionize and democratize this stuff. I mean, we're Berkeley hippies, right. and we're like, hey, we can open source this stuff, and we can bring it out to the world, and everyone can use this, and you know, it'll be awesome, like we can have impact. The impact we wanna have is people using it. We don't wanna make any money. Right. So that, that was our thinking. And we started the Spark project, actually. It was called Spark at the time. Right. Uh, right there at uh, UC Berkeley in 2009. And actually some other projects that also ended up being really influential. Now companies build them on them as well. Okay. Uh, but the goal was very simple. Have as much impact as possible. We actually tried to give away the software to uh, open source companies in Silicon Valley at the time. And they all like slammed the door in our face and said, we're not interested in this stuff. Even this for is. free, they didn't want to take it. We, we're not only saying that, we're saying, you get the credit for it, <laughs> take it. We don't want it, we're researchers. We're gonna move on and do the next cool thing after this. Right. So we don't want it, take it. It's amazing though, please take it. And you can have it, you get all the credit. And, and they were like, nah, this is not enterprise software. It's not secure, you know, but um, you know. So yeah, it wasn't working, nobody was interested. And then, okay, so what happened? Did you pivot or did the market change? What happened that led you to start the company? 2012, we started discussing that, you know, basically they're not gonna pick this up. There's no way. Like they're just into this Hadoop thing that they have. Um, and for us to really succeed, we probably have to start a company ourselves. Uh, there's it's the only way. Like if we wanna have impact with the software, we probably need the company and um, we've gotta do it ourselves. And just so for, for members of the audience who don't know what Hadoop is, that's another data technology, right? But that was started by a company, right? Inside a company or? Yeah, it was started actually inside uh, Yahoo at the yeah. time. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's more or less dead these days. Um, you know, it's still used, but it's sort of waning. Um, and we actually were doing research on Hadoop and we could see how bad it was. Yeah. Uh, so we could see it's really easy to improve it. Okay. But the most important thing is you couldn't really do any machine learning or AI with Hadoop. Okay. And our first use case with Spark was actually an AI use case. It was, in fact, uh, predicting what movies people wanted to see because we were helping one of the researchers at UC Berkeley participate in what was called the Netflix competition. So sort of like an Amazon recommends if you like this book, you might. Yeah, like they had a competition too. at the time which was very successful where they said you get, I think, half a million dollars. Wow. Uh, if, you can, if you're the be best one at predicting what movies people want to see. So everybody submitted their sort of 
proposals. And the researchers at Berkeley were like, it's really, really hard doing this. We, we can't participate in competition. And we said, why? And they said, well, because we're using Hadoop to do the AI, and it really is not good. Mm-hmm. It's terrible software. Yeah. So uh, we helped them build Spark for that use case. Right. And they actually ended up getting the highest accuracy level you could get in that competition but they submitted it 20 minutes after someone else who got the exact same <laughs> accuracy level. So didn't get any prize. That's half a million dollars you guys probably could have used, right, at yes. that, uh, at that yes. stage. All right, and how many co-founders did you guys have? Six, but there was also a lot of other research lab members that joined immediately afterwards. Wow. So there was like a whole sort of, you know, I would say Berkeley Mafia that right. started the company, but six like original founders. So when you have that many, I have to think there's pros and cons. Maybe pros because you get a wide diversity of ideas, you have a, more smart people working on your project, but I can think that might prove unwieldy. Like, did you have challenges or did that work out pretty easily? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there were, you know, there were yeah. ups and downs, Yeah. Uh, but if you can make it work, it's far superior to be lots of co-founders. Okay. Because there's just many more of you uh, that can help. As the company starts scaling, when you get into hyperscale, and you're growing extremely fast and you're getting to like, you know, 100 employees, 200 employees, 500 employees, 600, 700. Right, right. Uh, at that point, uh, there's so many new people in the company, especially if you've grown fast. It's awesome to be able to have lots of the original DNA embedded in the company in different places that can help bootstrap all the different efforts. Okay. And having six of them is, you know, much, much better than just being you alone. Right, right, right. So it was, ended up being a huge advantage in our case. And, you know, we used to say, I mean, there was like the PayPal mafia, right? Which was also six people. Oh, that's right. Uh, and they went on and did great things. Now they're all very famous. So. Yes. Okay. So, I uh, expect great things from all the co-founders. Yes, then. we're just okay. going to follow them exactly. You, you mentioned, playbook. you talked earlier about the enterprise use case. Maybe as, as you, it's now 2012, you guys are kind of starting the, the company. Talk a little more about the, the specific problem or problems that you guys thought these enterprises want us to solve, or, or maybe that wasn't so clear at the time. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, we took three bets uh-huh. initially, and as academics, they were kind of crazy bets. Right. And at the time, anyone who kind of knew anything uh, told us that these are mistakes. Huh. Um, so one bet was we wanted the company to be 100% cloud company, uh-huh. so 100% SaaS in the cloud AI, right. n- no on-prem whatsoever. Okay. And we used to get beaten up on this point by almost everyone, mm-hmm. and also almost by anyone who would join the company. Like, really? There would be this thing, like every time we hire an exec, we'd have to go through this detox period of six to 12 months <laughs> where they told us that you've done everything <laughs> wrong and we need to pivot the company to on-prem. Yeah. Uh, until they became indoctrinated. And you would see that the, the switch would happen. At some point they would start saying like, yeah, the cloud is so much superior. And you say, wow, okay, we, we flipped him. Right. Like now he's right. finally like, uh, but, um, uh, that was kind of the um, okay. the the journey that that's one two uh, we wanted to be based on open source okay but we knew that open source is hard to monetize uh-huh. and we didn't want to actually do uh, support and services like most of the open source companies were doing most open source companies were following this red hat model right. we were not so it was a second bet okay um, the third bet was machine learning and AI which wasn't actually hot in 2012 uh-huh. you know, big data was a big thing back then, mm-hmm. but uh, AI and machine learning, not so much. Um, so those were the three big bets that we took early on, and they all had big challenges. Uh, huh, and then what was it hard to raise funding? Were, were investors skeptical because of those three things? Those were all kind of controversial positions that you're taking at the time. Well, when you start a company, you sell the dream to the investors. Right. Uh, and you know, if you have good pedigree and the software is kind of looks good, you know, they take a bet on you. Mm-hmm. So things were good 2013, 14. 15, it started getting wobbly. And actually, it's kind of interesting because 2015 is actually the year 
uh, in which Spark actually finally took off. So this whole thing that we were fighting for and everybody sort of didn't want, and there was sort of, there's a lot of FUD in the market against it. Right. 2015, it just exploded. And everybody just like, we love Spark. Why? They was there an it. event that happened that made everybody change their mind? It's hard to say, but there's something that coincides with this happening, which is a lot of people were saying, hey, the Spark thing you guys built, it's great for just in memory, but it's if you have in memory processing. But a lot of data sets are really large and they don't mm -hmm. fit in memory. So then your technology doesn't work for that. This was the FUD and it used to drive us insane. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that year, we um, partook in a competition. It's called the sorting competition. And we sorted the fastest uh, anyone has done a petabyte of data. So mm -hmm. we sorted a petabyte of data and we won that competition. And we didn't have a petabyte of memory. So it kind of proved to everyone that this technology absolutely works, not just in memory, but also for real huge data sets that don't fit in memory. Right. And so at the same time that this got announced, people started sort of jumping on Spark. And you know, you would see the same companies that had told us that you know this is not interesting software, suddenly had sort of videos on the webpage saying, literally, we love Spark. Okay. And Gartner put it in the top of the hype curve. And uh -huh. like it happened so fast overnight. Wow. So that was awesome. But around, you asked about fundraising around that time, um, actually investors started saying, okay, you sold us on the dream, but where is your money? Yeah. And you don't have any revenue. And we had actually, I think the revenue recognition for that year and the 2015 was $1 million. Yeah, not a lot. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, right. so 2015 was a tough year for us to raise money. How many uh, employees did you have that year? Probably around 100. 100, and now you have how many? We're over 700 employees now. We're talking to Ali Godsey, the co-founder and CEO of data analytics and AI company Databricks. Up next, we'll talk to Godsey about what it's like to go from academia to the corporate world and the special skills he needed to learn to actually run a company, in particular, recruiting top functional executives. Are there some lessons that you feel like you learned, maybe things you guys wish you had done differently that might help other people that are trying to do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Bring in the pros who've been doing this for a long while. Yeah. And the problem with academia is that you have extremely smart people and they've been always incentivized to kind of break the mold, do something different. Like in academia, you're supposed to do something that no one has done before. You're supposed to publish a paper with a result that no one in mankind ever has been able to do before, right? right? So, that's, so you're always thinking about questioning everything, questioning the status quo, and coming up with a different way of doing it, okay? That's awesome for coming up with an innovation that's gonna disrupt the market. So that's great, okay. that's check. Yeah. But now you're running a company, you gotta do marketing, you gotta do sales, you gotta do biz dev, you gotta do finance. Mm -hmm. Applying that sort of thinking to each of these departments, it's a horrible mistake, and almost all academics make that mistake. So they go like, oh, why should I pay a salesperson 300K? That doesn't make any sense. I'll pay them 100K, and you know, I'll change their comp plan like this, and I have my own formula I'm going to use. And oh, I'm not going to do marketing this way. I have a better idea than all right. these marketers and so on. And then now you try to do all of those things, and that's usually the downfall of most academic sort of startups. So realizing where to apply your innovation and where to just go with the pros that know how to execute. That It's kind of an interesting segue to another topic I want to talk about, which is uh, technical founders and how they become good managers. I think we were talking about this earlier. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is full of technical company founders who became CEOs. Some succeed very famously, you know, others do not. Sometimes people bring in the gray hair because they feel like, oh my God, like you said, these guys think they want to do everything differently. They don't understand basic corporate management. 
Um, how did you approach that as a very technical founder, or did you approach it consciously, and did you just kind of go by intuition? No, I mean, it's, you know, you have to work really hard and yeah. learn all those new things. And so if it's a completely new job, for me, this was like my real first job out of academia. Wow. So yeah, you have to relearn everything. Um, and the way I would say that my advice would be, treat it as something completely new that you have to learn from scratch. Uh -huh. And most of the things that you know probably won't apply. Really? And in fact, most of the things that you're good at probably won't help you as a CEO. Um, What's an example? Just like as a CEO, I don't think we'll be very successful if they enter a research lab and they try to uh, yeah. come up with some innovation. Exactly. Well, what, what are some examples of things that you did? Did you read cheesy business books? Did you seek out mentors? I mean, what did you do to try to learn? All of the above, yeah. yeah. Read you know, every book you could find, talk to everyone who's done it before. Um, that's, you know, and then, you know, make a bunch of mistakes. Right, 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 right. Okay. That's, okay. that's the way to do it. Basically, as a researcher, you get rewarded if you look at some problem, find some really hard problem that no one's been able to sort of yeah. crack before, and you come up with a solution and you crack that problem, and you write a paper that communicates that really well to the world. If you can do that really well, you will be an amazing researcher. You don't need to be a great manager. You don't need to be a great mentor. You don't need to be great at giving speeches even. You don't need to be good at any of the things that are needed as a leader in a company. Mm -hmm. As a CEO, there's completely different skill sets that you need. Uh, you need to learn them. Um, it's right. as simple as that. Do you think most technical CEOs can do that, or is that the exception that maybe in the end they need to step back to a CTO, to a chairman role as a company scales? I think if they're open to learning those skills, yeah, it's very simple. I mean, it's four things basically you have yeah. to do. One is you have to come up with a vision and vision for the company, right? And it has to resonate with everyone in the company. You have to keep repeating it to everyone in the company. Yeah. But the vision alone is not enough. You have to come up with also a strategy. How do we actually get towards that? Just saying, hey, the future looks amazing like that doesn't right. help. You have to also have a strategy for how can we actually get there? What are the things, what are the bets we're going to do over, let's say, one, two year period? Yeah. You got to keep repeating that also to everyone and make everybody kind of bought into that. Mm -hmm. Third, which is the hardest part, you have to assemble a team that can really execute. Right. Like really, really strong team. You have to find those people. And then the fourth thing is how do you align that team to like really gel well with each other and execute on that vision and strategy. Those are the four things you have to do. It's a different skill set than what you do in research and academia. If, you, if you're open-minded and you're willing to learn to do those four things, um, you'll do great. So you have to if, check your ego a little yeah, bit. But if you ways. think like, oh, you know, I know ex I'm like world-class researcher, I'm the smartest guy in the room, I know exactly, and like this is, this is really stupid stuff that this company people are doing. Yeah. And you get in there and you're not trying to learn those four things that I said and you're not trying to do them, then yeah, yeah, yeah. you're you have a limited uh, of those of those effort. four areas what's been the toughest one for you oh, it's a hiring one, one yeah for sure in a competitive yeah. market and if you haven't hired like so you're a technologist you're awesome at technology great you know everything about technology okay but now you have to hire a head of marketing mm -hmm. what do you know about marketing not, right? not much yeah. all right okay now you have to hire a head of sales what do you know about sales you know uh, okay now you have to hire a uh, say BD person or a mm -hmm. finance person what do you know about that how do you know how can you size them up how do you find really, really good person and right. and then also be able to hire them and convince them to come join your vision yeah. and talk to them in a way so that they can get that vision and the strategy that you have. Um, that's that's the hardest part. Have you focused on networking very specifically then in order to try, because hi, in this market hiring is so crazy and hiring is probably your number one pain point. How have you how have you kind of developed your network? Because I'm thinking your network was probably very academia focused, yeah. right? I usually joke that I'm the chief uh, recruiting officer. Yeah, you know, I mean half of my job is recruiting. Uh, I'm sure so that's what you do all the time. That's like that's kind of like the job. Right. You, right. 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 You have a fancy title, but really what you're doing is recruiting all day. 
Well, let's talk about the company's culture a little bit. How has it changed as the company has scaled? Because your company has scaled extremely rapidly. How has the culture changed and how do you how do you manage that? And what are your biggest concerns there? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that uh, culture kind of doesn't matter and you don't need to care about it when you start the company uh-huh. uh, because everybody knows each other. And in fact, the first people, like 20 people at Databricks, were all the same. So we already had the same culture, so we didn't have to even be explicit about it. Yeah. Everybody thought the same. Through osmosis, everyone would just do the right thing. Right. And you can kind of continue managing so that decisions are made the right way uh, all the time. You don't need specific culture or anything until you hit, and this a lot of people have talked about this, Dunbar's Law, which mm-hmm. is 150 people. Yeah. That's around, like around 100, 150, 200 people. Now you don't longer anymore know the name of everyone. Mm-hmm. and. Now we have managers who manage managers, and there's another person. There's like many hops between them. Maybe they're in a different continent. Uh, yeah. Now suddenly you can't actually be everywhere, and you can't make sure. And these people come from very different backgrounds, especially if you hired execs. Mm-hmm. So how do you actually make sure that they're doing the right thing? Uh, and that right. they're, so that's when culture actually becomes important. But in some sense, then it's too late to right. put a culture in place. So you should have actually started earlier when it, you didn't need a culture. But now you actually need a culture because those cultural principles is kind of how you govern the company. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it also probably governs how you hire, right? Because you want to be hiring people who are going to fit into that culture. Yeah, right? you want to hire people that fit into your culture. You want to promote people that fit the culture. Right. And you kind of not, want to not have people who are not fitting the culture anymore mm-hmm. uh, uh, in your company. And right. you want to continuously uh, communicate that culture, especially at Databricks. Every time we have all hands, I always ask how many people joined in the last six months. Right. And it's like 50, 60% of the audience. Wow. So you got to keep repeating that culture. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. 60% only been here less than, you know, six months. Oh, my goodness. Well, well. so how, how have the jobs of your executives changed as the company has grown? I mean, it's more than just I'm managing more people. I'm managing different issues. And I don't know if you've, if you've wound up even swapping out a lot of the top executives of the company or if a lot of those people have stuck with you since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, been fortunate that most of them have actually stuck around. Yeah. But in many cases, what you do is they get a new boss. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that's strange about really hyperscale companies uh, like Databricks is that in most companies on the planet, uh, you can actually grow in your career much faster than that company that you're in is developing, right? If you're in a big, you know, Fortune 50 company, you can progress in your career quickly. That company is only growing, you know, 10, 20% every year. Right. In companies like Databricks, the company is actually outgrowing you much faster than you can grow in your career. Very few people can actually keep up with the growth of that company, uh-huh. right? We're doubling every year, tripling every year. Um, so it's a natural thing. People just have to get used to that. You know, you might be doing a job today that you were hired for and you were managing all of that. Now you're going to get a new boss and your role is actually going to, your scope is actually going to decrease. But if they're bought into the vision and they love the company and they believe in where we're headed in the long term, then they usually stay. So we've been fortunate that most of those people have actually stuck around, but all the time there's been new managers coming in at the higher level. Right. Well, so final management question for you. Um, when you guys started, we talked about Apache Spark and your initial work, uh, you know, very focused on open source databases. Now the company's doing a lot more, which is probably a lot more work. So talk about how, how you manage that. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the original principle. I said you have to have a vision, a strategy. And mm-hmm. You have to have the people that can actually execute on that, and then you have to like make sure that they're aligned. It's actually hard to do. Yeah. One, you start. Most companies are one-trick ponies, and then they just figure out how to go to market with that one trick that they have. So actually, learning multiple tricks. So after Spark, uh, we did a project called uh, Delta, mm-hmm. and then after Delta, we did a project that's called ML Flow. Um, so that actually requires um, quite a bit of vision setting 
and then talking about the strategy and then getting the people that can actually execute on these things. Right. Because people, everyone's sort of, hey, we have this one trick we knew and that's what we're doing. And you have to kind of reset. And it's, it's, it's hard. So uh, um, you have to do all those four things that I said again. You have to keep repeating it. You have to find the right people that can execute on that strategy. So okay. nowadays we do much, much more than Apache Spark. Okay. We cover much, much more ground uh, than we did initially. And the company actually looks very different in terms of actually the technology stack than it did when we started it. And you finally figured out how to make money from open source, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, we've shared these numbers publicly. So um, um, so I said we were about 1 million revenue end of 2015. Uh-huh. And last year, uh, 2018, we passed 100 million ARR. So um, yeah, so the go-to-market sort of motion really uh, started working in the last two, three years. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, Ali Goetze, a lot of interesting thoughts about uh, Databricks, AI, academia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.